in Noah. Again, we started Noah last week. Peter did an excellent job of tackling nice, difficult theological questions that I don't want to tackle. So thank you for that, Peter. I think we should do that every week, actually. We have Peter, then me. <laughs> right, today uh, we're doing the second part of Noah. Now, you might have noticed that Rob and I are expecting something. And um, when you're thinking about names for children, you spend hours and hours because you really struggle just to even find one name that you actually both like. Um, and on Wednesday, we, um, we had this great meal out, which was really nice. Rob's parents said, we're going to babysit. You guys can go out. And uh, what, we, we talked about lots of stuff, but it wasn't long before we got on to names. And uh, we, so, so we sort of sat there in the restaurant, and we went through names. Victoria, no. Felicity, too many Fs. You can't have fa 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 Aoife, no. She'll never be able to spell it. No one will. And she's already got to spell flukes. Um, so you go on like this. Um, and the objections come, you know, the meaning's wrong, or it shortens, and then it makes something humorous, and then the, the, the letters make a funny word. <laughs> um, but more often than not, it's about character. It's about the people that you know with that name. And um, if you're a teacher, you'll know how hard that is. She taught so many children. Um, when we were picking Emily, Emily was pretty much the only name I'd come up with that I taught nice Emily's. I, I, I know that other people have said to me since, oh, I knew this Emily, she was, she was horrible. But I had taught nice Emily's. They were sweet, kind, sometimes a little bit dim, but that's okay. And, and they were just good-natured. And I thought, Emily, that's exactly what I want for my daughter. I want her to be sweet, good-natured, and kind. So you can imagine how I felt... <laughs> <laughs> as we sat at New Wine and she sat in the paddling pool opposite the lovely Daniel and repeatedly pushed him over in a violent manner into the water. <laughs> and it's disappointment, isn't it? But we shouldn't be surprised, should we, as parents, that our children aren't sweet and kind. We shouldn't be there. In Genesis, right at the beginning, we see... Uh, the kind of, we see God's loving parental heart um, towards his, his people. Um, and the world is spiraling. And God gives a really honest opinion of human beings. Um, he loves them. He's a parent to them. We realize that. We hear that God is described as a father. But his opinion is this. Um, And this comes right in chapter 6, right at the beginning. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. All the time. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. And that's a father's honest opinion. That's, that's, let's not put love in the equation. As God honestly looks, that's what he sees. And uh, we hear lots of theories on evil, don't we? As, as we, as a human race, try to battle it. Um, so we think if we could just get the environment right, 
you know, if we had the right systems, the right punishments in place, if we were able to catch people early enough, if we had them raised by perfect people, if we didn't expose them to violence or computer games or horrific films too early, if we could turn off a genetic button that makes them prone to violence, if we could breed a human super race, these are all our ideas, aren't they? Then we would have a good human race. We would be able to improve it. And it's really easy as we watch the news and as we read articles. I read a couple on Facebook this week that just made me weep at the horror and the horrificness of the world. And when you're walking around events like New Wine and there's charity after charity after charity telling you the plight of human beings and the hideous suffering, you can't help but get this rage that if God could just do something to get rid of these people, it would be okay. Why doesn't God step in? But the Bible tells us something different. It tells us that the problem is not just out there. But the Bible tells us that the problem is also here, in this room. Closer than that, it is in us personally. Because what did we read? That the inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And that's the truth, whether we uh, find that hard to accept or we find it easy because we feel down on ourselves or miserable about ourselves. That is it. So what should God do about this? How should he tackle? Well, let's read um, the account of Noah. And um, we're going to... Um, read that God um, said in um, chapter 6 verse 6 to 7 I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that means he's deeply grieved in anguish to the soul he regrets that he has made them And so we're going to read this familiar Noah story. You know, it's not a Sunday school night. The animals went in two by two. It is is heartbreaking to think, really think, of the people that died on that day. As the earth was completely covered in water. And there's one guy, one guy that God picks out to save. Just one guy, Noah. Just one of the, how many were there? Thousands? Hundreds of thousands? One guy, Noah, and his family that he chooses to save. So let's read um, the second half. And it's chapter 7, and it's verse 6 is where we're going to start. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, 
of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood water came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heaven were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and the entire human race. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Human beings and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and these, those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Arat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, The tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. 
He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of human beings, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. (sighs) It's a long one. (laughs) So... There we've got it. Annihilation. Annihilation. It's not exactly the friendly children's story that we do. But I want to pick up on a few things this morning. We're not going to wade through it verse by verse. But I want to just pick up on some of the questions that it raises. Uh, Okay. No. Okay. So question number one. Surely some of those who were destroyed weren't that bad. Okay. That's question number one. It's a natural objection, isn't it? Of the thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, however many they were, surely some weren't that bad. And when we approach stuff like this, it's a natural objection. And we start categorizing people in the world. Good people, bad people. Whoever they are. But God's judgment is not our judgment, is it? He compares people with what they were created to be like. He sees their hearts. When we look at the world like God, we see really disgusting things. We weep. We feel anger. We feel anguish. We feel despair and frustration that nothing is done about it. And when we start to look at that, we ourselves become more like angelic beings who couldn't possibly do wrong. Because comparatively, who could possibly do what some people do? But we're not compared with them. We're compared with God. And the thing is, we've lost perspective because the world is every inclination of man's heart is evil. We have lost perspective. 
We wouldn't want to compare with them. We compare ourselves with Jesus. That's the only place we're comparing. And Paul says when he really looks, and he was a pretty considered a very good man by people around him, he said, anything I've done that was good is like filthy rags. In fact, disgusting. It is foul. It is vomit-worthy. Anything good I have done. That's when he really compared himself with Jesus. Remember God's comments were that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time? Well, what about after the flood? Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Verse 21. Had the flood changed anything? Before, every inclination is evil. Afterwards, every inclination is evil. But Noah, he was good, right? No. It says, every inclination is still evil. Nothing's changed. Noah was shown mercy. Mercy. He, along with everyone else, was completely corrupt in their heart. So the problem hasn't been solved. So that raises a couple more questions, doesn't it? Why wasn't God just willing to destroy it all? And if he's not willing to destroy it, what can, what can happen? What can be done? So first, why wouldn't God destroy it all? And we know from the Bible, a simple answer is love. Love. God loves his creation. He is passionate about his creation. And especially humans made in his image, filled with his breath. He saw that it was very good. God poured himself out as a creative being into the world. He's so entwined with it, so passionate about it, like a parent with a newborn child. And if you have a child, you know that from the minute you see that child, you would die for that child. You would, you would, you would do anything at that point. Even, even grandparents feel the same. My in-laws said, They weren't bothered about being grandparents until they saw her and then they felt this savageness in them that nothing was going to touch her ever. And with that comes deep pain. We saw that he was grieved, anguish to his very core as people reject their creator. We read that violence covered the earth. There is not just wickedness, there is murder. There is every evil you can imagine in your mind today. And the depth of pain of God is there. In Hosea, God tries to express his pain between a husband and a wife, like a husband who loves his wife, but his wife continually just goes off. And sees other men who treat her terribly. 
Throughout the Bible, we see God's emotions of grief and rage and anguish at the pain of the injustice of this world. In Jesus, we see that blaze of anger at the Pharisees that they don't care about the poor and they keep people bound. We see him um, weeping for his friend who died young. And we see him weeping tears of despair at people who won't recognize who he is. God's not completely destroyed us sitting here because of that passionate love that he has for us. He sees us with perfect justice, the state of the world, and he bears it in himself. Whatever pain we feel when we see something happening, it's a taste of what the pain and depth of God's heart feels towards that thing. We're just tasting it, just the tiniest bit. So if this is the case, what's the answer? How can God deal with this corruptness, this wickedness, Why doesn't he just wipe us off the face of the earth? I know often I think, just finish it. I don't mind God. I'd rather we just all finish now because what I've just seen is beyond what I can cope with. But Noah, why him? Why Noah? You know, what was special about him? Noah, we read in um, chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people at the time, and he walked faithfully with God. So surely that's our answer. You know, that's what most people would say. You know, you just need to be good. You need to be gooder than the person next to you. You need to be good enough. No. God's clear, isn't he? After the flood, nothing has changed. Every inclination is still evil. Nothing's changed. But the clue is in chapter 6, verse 8. Have a look at that. Chapter 6, verse 8. This is our clue. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is not just favor. This is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. This is grace. Grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Even though he was corrupt to his heart, we know that. He may have seemed like the nicest person on the block. He may have been the person who always looks after his neighbor, who cares, who gives you a lift to the station, who is compassionate to children, kind to the poor. But he only escaped by grace, unmerited favor. Uh, there's a theologian writer, you won't know who he is, but Motia, anyone might know. He said it's better to read it, grace found Noah. Not, not the other way, grace found Noah. Grace comes to Noah. Before we read about him walking righteously or being a nice guy, grace found Noah. In the New Testament, it tells us we are saved by grace alone. All rescue, all answers begin with grace. The grace of God finds us. 
Grace found you. And we should never be tempted to think otherwise. You know, imagine Noah and his family coming out of the ark. Here they go. And a few years later, when someone says, you know, why were you saved? It would have been so easy for them to start saying, well, you know, dad was a good guy. And uh, God saw that he was good. And uh, we weren't bad. So God said that he would. And um, so we made a plan. We were quite sensible and thought we'd get some insurance just in case it went wrong. So we built this big up. But that is not what we read. Look at Noah's response um, in chapter 8 and verse 20. Okay. Here it is. Chapter 8, verse 20, and it's also on the screen. Noah built an ark to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Now, the burnt offering was that first one, wasn't it? Remember when we did Leviticus? This is the one where you t- it's totally and utterly consumed. Okay, Nothing's left. You can't share a bit of it. You can't keep a bit of it. It's not a celebration with your family and your friends. It's not a community thing. Every bit of it is completely burnt. Nothing is left for the worshipper. It is entirely given to God. Nothing is held back at all. This is like the woman coming to Jesus with the alabaster oil and she pours it over him. Nothing was held out. Nothing was held back. And Noah, similarly here, pours out an offering. He demonstrates trust freely by sacrificing. What does it say? It says all of the animals. All of them. Some of all of them. Imagine how many animals he sacrificed. Some of all of them, all the clean ones. Imagine how many, how long this would have taken. And remember, those ones are the ones he's allowed to eat, and there aren't many left. He has passionate praise of God. He shows his thankfulness. He knows that why he is there on dry land is not because he was nice but because the grace of God found him. Grace found Noah. And when Noah responds to this grace, what do we see? We see right living. We see that he was righteous. His neighbors could see that God was at work in his life. We saw total obedience. In chapter 6, verse 22, it says that he did all that God asked total obedience and finally we see extravagant worship of thanks that grace had found him i wonder how we respond to the grace of god that grace has found us in Noah, we're told that by, in, sorry, in Hebrews, we're told that by faith, when warned about the things not seen, in holy fear, Noah built the ark. Grace warned Noah, grace sustained Noah, and grace changed Noah. How do we respond to the grace of God?
It's not a boat, is it, for us? It's a man on a cross taking the rightful judgment that we deserve. We are warned about the coming judgment. The justice is coming and we might be desperate for that. Lord, I cannot bear this anymore. I want over there that thing to be dealt with finally, for justice to be seen on the earth. But are we remembering that we are clinging to the cross and God's grace? Do we, like Noah, respond with right living, righteousness? Do we totally obey And do we have extravagant worship of God? Or is it a bit like, oh, not this song again? We want to take refuge in Jesus and that cross. This is God's answer to this corrupt world. He won't destroy. He wants to save. When Jesus came, he said, I haven't come to condemn. I've come to save. God would rather bring destruction on his only son than on this world. When we look at the magnitude of evil, try to balance that with the magnitude of love that holds God's hand back. So how will we respond to God's grace today? Let's just pray together. There's some of us today that we know all too well our failings and the state of our heart. When we hear this, we just know it's ours and we nod and we say, I deserve it. Because we still feel so rubbish about ourselves. But God wants to come to you today and say, my grace has found you. I love you. I will change you, sustain you. I will save you. For others, maybe this morning we become aware that there is a sense of self-righteousness in us. We do look down on others too much. The world is the problem. It's out there. And you've been reminded today that the problem is also in here. And finally, there might be those who feel that God's grace isn't for you. You don't feel like he's rescuing you. You're in the toughest situation today. And God doesn't seem to notice. But God knows your situation and he weeps with you. He has all the compassion of a father. And when Noah was in that boat and it was dark and months were going by, days were going by, had God forgotten him? Had he heard God wrong? Had he got it wrong? God remembered him. And his timing is perfect. just spend a few minutes allowing God to speak. If you would like prayer for any of that today or anything you've got going on, the prayer team are going to be down the front here today and they would love to just walk with you, just to to stand next to you. You don't need to tell them anything. They can just sit and be with you while you pray or you might want to share with them. It's up to you. They are here just to walk with you as you meet with God this morning. Amen.